Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight incredible women in STEM and discover who they are at home, at work, and everywhere in between. You can find all of our episodes online at podcast.swe.org or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Hi, I'm your host, Larry Guthrie, Director of Content Strategy for SWE, and welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. We are live here at We23 in the Diverse Podcast Studio with Elaine Lynn Herring today, and I'm so excited to have her on the show to talk about allyship. One of SWE's strategic goals is to champion intersectional diversity within engineering and technology and model an inclusive and equitable environment. Learning how to be better allies to one another is critical in achieving this goal. So I'm super excited to learn some new tips from Elaine on how to speak up and build more inclusive environments in STEM. Elaine is a writer, speaker, lawyer, lecturer at Harvard Law School, and she is also the author of the book, Unlearning Silence. Welcome to Diverse Elaine. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to get into this, so let's just dive in if you're okay. Let's do it. You have spoken extensively in your career about unlearning silence for individuals, allies, and professionals. Today, we are tackling all things allyship. So let's start baseline this conversation. How do you define an ally? Yeah, an ally is someone who supports rather than silences you. And ally, as many others have said, ally is a verb. So it is not an airline frequent flyer status that you achieve by having done something once. Allyship is not a tick the box exercise. And so when we all say that it's a verb, it means that it is a choice that you continue to make in every meeting, in every context, in every room, in the rooms that people aren't in, about how you show up for them, about how you lend your social capital to help people hear them. And it's also not a status that you can confer upon yourself, right? So to be an ally means that someone else experiences you as an ally. It's not about your intent to show up, it's about the impact that you have. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's always impact over intent, right? Yes, in our ideal world. And yet so often in engineering and in so many other industries, we are full of good intent and not always full of good impact. That's fair. That is fair. I, and I also love how you share that nuance that Ally is about even when they're not in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a powerful nuance to that definition that I think is worth repeating for our listeners. Yeah, and let's say why, right? Because when we talk about the highest levels of leadership, it is often rare to have women in those rooms. So it makes it all the more important for anyone who's going to be an ally to be speaking our names to say, hey, Kelsey is phenomenal. We need to have her on the project. Or Ying is the one who is closest to the data. And so we need to hear from them. Too often as leaders, we focus on what is my accomplishment? 
how can I get credit? But really our success is not our individual success. Our success is how are we uplifting? How are we engaging? How are we unleashing the talent of everyone around us? And that requires speaking their names, giving credit where credit is due. But also because I like to think of it, integrity is what you do when no one's watching. Mm-hmm. So if they aren't in the room, it's one thing to say like, oh, Kelsey's in the room, so we're going to promo her. It's another if she's not there, has no idea it's happening, isn't going to be invited, but you are bringing her in by naming her skill set, naming what you think of her, creating those opportunities. That's why it matters. Because it's not so that they feel good about themselves. It's so that you actually get your name and ideas out there and respected. Yes. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I couldn't have said it better. In your work, you have mentioned that even when leaders consider themselves allies and they want diverse perspectives, um, they still have moments Mm -hmm. where they ask their teams to speak up and yet everyone remains silent. Crickets. What do you think is behind that? Life. Right. We all come in, you could call it life experience, you could call it baggage, whatever you want to call it. We all come in with preconceived notions of how a manager is going to show up. And frankly, some of those preconceived notions are really well grounded in our past experiences. So when I walk into a room with my new manager, I'm not seeing them. I don't even know them. I'm thinking of every other manager I've ever had before. I'm thinking of the faculty member who shut me down when I was in graduate school. I'm thinking of my uncle who never let me get a word in edgewise. We're coming in with all these notions of who gets to speak up, how this is going to go down, whether it's worth it for me to do. And so it makes sense that there's safety in silence. If I don't say something, I'm not sticking my neck out I'm less likely to get hurt. So there's an element of self-protection. But there is also the organizational silence that builds in a culture. Because very few of us want to be the one to sort of test the waters of how is this going to go? The manager's saying that they really want to know what we have to say. But the last time someone did that, well, they're not here anymore. So all of that history is there, but we're also building cultures, either of voice or of silence. And I mean, there's a ton of research on organizational silence and employee silence, but basically how a manager responds in the moment determines whether people think it's worth it to raise issues, to bring new ideas to the mix. And each of us, by the choices that we make, either to say something or not say something, are constantly reinforcing or challenging the pre-existing culture of silence or a voice. So I'm going to make a plug for what we can each do. Please. Thanks. <laughs> I was looking for permission there, which is let's use our voices. And I'm, I'm saying like start with the low stakes context when it's, I'm trying to think of what is low stakes and the lowest stakes thing I can think of is, you know, the, the sort of team lunch. Are we going to have Thai food or are we going to have Mexican food? Like, doesn't really matter, right? We're going to get fed. The company's probably going to pay for it. It's already a win for everyone. But having an opinion does a couple of things. A, it reminds us that we actually have a voice and we can use it. B, you might actually influence the outcome. And so 
needing so often to constantly remind ourselves, I have a voice, my voice matters, I have influence here, because so many of the systems, the teams, the organizations we work in, it can just feel like we're a cog in a wheel, particularly if you're more junior, particularly if you're newer to the organization. Does my thought really matter? Probably not. But actually exercising that muscle both reminds us that we have a voice and it also signals to other people that we can have disagreements between Thai food and Mexican food. We have can have disagreements on the best strategic way forward on this project. We could even see the technical aspects and the risks of a decision differently and that is okay here versus we all have to comply. That's how we build inclusion. That's how we build a place where it is okay to be different because our differences actually can be our superpowers. That makes sense to me. And it, I love that it's what it's sounding like is that I know in the book you talk about this term learned silence mm. and it's about unlearning at every level. It has to be at every level. It can't be it. It's really a complete cultural shift, a complete mindset shift. Totally. And there are three levels of silence, right? There's the ways that we silence ourselves, that we deny our own needs, our wants, because we are acculturated often as women to think about everyone else. We're solving for what does my manager think? What does the company think? What does my family expect of me? So we're not thinking about what do I think or what is my voice. So there's the ways we silence ourselves. There's the way we silence other people, despite our best intentions, and I know we'll get into it, of well-intentioned leaders saying, I'm here to support you. And my work as an external consultant has been fascinating because when you get team members on the line in an anonymous survey or diagnostic, they're like, no, my manager isn't there. They don't support me. And you get this huge disconnect where well-intentioned leaders and managers are like, no, but I'm, I'm trying so hard. Why isn't it landing? And people being like, they suck. So what gives? So we'll solve for the ways that leaders unintentionally silence the people they really genuinely want to support. And then third is this organizational cultural silence that we talked about. So if those are three levers around silence, we're solving or trying to unlearn each of them. So I guess the, the natural question is, how, how do we? How do we <laughs> unlearn? That. What yeah. does unlearning silence Great for allies question. look like? What is that? Step Where do one, we start? Yeah, step one, recognize that silence is even a thing. So I'll say I spent 10 years in leadership development teaching negotiation, difficult conversations, and feedback skills off of tools and frameworks created by colleagues at the Harvard Negotiation Project. And I think those tools and frameworks are sound and useful. And yet my observation is that after a lot of investment in training or sending people to executive education programs, some people still didn't negotiate, still didn't have the difficult conversations, still didn't give and receive feedback, no matter how much HR pushed them to do it. Why is that? Because we've all learned silence. We've benefited from silence, from the time, from our families of origin to how we were educated. And I'll say that I am the youngest daughter of a Chinese American family. I am the youngest. You're supposed to be quiet. This whole, you know, children are supposed to be seen and not heard. That still has tentacles through our, our learning. I am a woman and not the son in a patriarchal family. So I'm not unequal 
footing. And then there's a cultural component where deference and respect comes in the form of not saying something. That is the silence I have learned. And the first step to unlearning that is to just recognize that those are my defaults. So I'd ask folks who are listening, what are your defaults? What have you learned about when it's okay to speak up, when it is not okay to speak up? What parts of yourselves can you bring to work or can you bring to your team? Or do you feel that you have to edit out? Those are all the different ways that we're silencing ourselves and step one is to acknowledge it. Step two is to really wrestle and reckon with it. This is what I've learned. Oh, totally. (laughs) And that's why the book is called Unlearning Silence, I-N-G Ongoing journey that I am on, right? I think three minutes ago, I looked at you of like, can I have permission to share a story? And you're like, yes, of course. I'm like, yeah, but that's so deeply ingrained in us to ask for permission, to have to wonder if we can take up space because the world and our teams often send the messages that we can't, right? You're here to perform a function, get the work done, don't cause any trouble, Those are a lot of the messages that we internalize. And so the interrogation step two is, what do I actually think of those messages? Do they serve me? As a leader, are those the assumptions, operating assumptions I want to be true on our team? Or am I trying to build something different? How do we want to operate on this team and in our sphere of influence? And then third, I would say, is try small experiments which is we've got to take it from awareness into action. I would recommend starting with low stakes instances. We talked about a lunch order, right? But trying something, not with the, an attachment to the outcome, but for the sake of what might I learn? And more often than not, my experience and the people I've coached and, and doing this work is this realization of, oh, I do have a voice. And often, the world didn't fall apart. And that shapes how we move move going forward. Yeah. What you said around exercising a muscle really resonated Mm. for me. And it ties, when you're talking about, it's like any muscle, right? Mm -hmm. You just talk about low stakes, Mm -hmm. low weight, right? It's Mm -hmm. that same type of concept. Well, and Larry, we also know that we all hate going to the gym. (laughs) So let's just acknowledge, like, that's hard. It is hard. It is hard to be consistent. Yes. And yet, this is the other fallacy that we often have, which is, I know what I'm comfortable with, and I'm comfortable with silence because that's what I know and what I've learned, and often at work what I get rewarded for. I'm comfortable not in a deep soul sort of way, but in a, ah, this will do sort of way. And we fundamentally underestimate the potential benefit of going to the gym. Yes. Or at least I do. But I know I should. And you know that the growth isn't going to come without exercising the muscle. Completely. Same kind of. Completely. And with the different experiments. I mean, that's why I'm like, let's experiment. Because I will say, as a recovering perfectionist, it's like... But it didn't go well. What does go well mean? If we were to find success to say, going well means I learned something from it, it's a scientific method, then it is much easier to achieve success. I would think that scientific me- method would resonate with our audience. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, a, just a sneaking suspicion. Let's also just hack our lives in the same way that we do with scientific rigor. 
right? We're going to try something, not because we know, then this is the, the essence of innovation. We don't know necessarily whether it's going to work, but we will learn something by trying. Same thing of using our voices, sharing what we think. That crazy idea, you know, is the next possibly big thing. And there's an element there kind of baked in there that you have to be a bit vulnerable and brave. Does that yes. sound right? Absolutely. I mean, it's terrifying. <laughs> Let's acknowledge that it is terrifying and that is part of the process. And vulnerability is deeply uncomfortable for each of us, but it is also the only way to grow. And this is where leadership comes in and allyship comes in because too often vulnerability can feel like a luxury good for people with dominant identities. White men are allowed to be vulnerable. White women are allowed to be vulnerable. But if you as a person of color or as the only woman in a context are vulnerable about your weaknesses or what you're learning, you are penalized and branded as, your rep, there's reputational damage. So are we going to create the conditions where actually everybody gets to be vulnerable? Because we will learn something from that together if we are able to do that. Absolutely. Which kind of brings up a really good point. Um, you know, from what I'm hearing, there can be this disconnect, right, between the words and actions. Maybe mm. someone wants to be an ally mm -hmm. or even considers themselves an ally. Like somebody, of course, Remember, I'm an, it's I'm, not for their, them to consider I'm, themselves I'm an ally. I'm a card-carrying <laughs> member of allyship, <laughs> right? But their actions, though, yes. and you were talking about the impact early, uh, earlier in the conversation are still driven by that learned silence mm -hmm. piece. So how can our listeners resolve this? Mm. And I'm sure it's going to take a lot of self-awareness mm -hmm. so that they can become a better ally mm -hmm. for others and a better ally than they were and like yeah. that journey, start that journey to become. It's a never ending Absolutely. one, I'm sure. Absolutely. So in the book, I name nine different ways that we tend to silence other people. I'll offer one to start and then have you choose your own adventure of where you want to take us in this conversation. One that is particularly subtle, that very few of us realize is happening, but really shuts down a conversation and undermines trust is when we change the topic of conversation to ourselves. So what I mean by that, because it's super subtle, is someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm really struggling with how sales, so we all know sales and engineering don't always get along. Yes? Fair. So as an engineer, I'm really struggling with how sales is making promises that we can't deliver on. And then it throws us under the bus. And often people who want to be allies say, oh yeah, me too. Like, I'm really frustrated by that as well. Or they try to pacify to say, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. I've got it handled. But what we don't notice, notice in that micro interaction that we've actually changed the topic from their original concern about sales to my own reaction. Right? It's no longer about them, it has become about you. And being heard is 
table stakes. I mean, step one of allyship, of belonging, of inclusion, any of those things. Can we actually hear people for what they're saying and listen for what they're at? What is the real topic they are raising rather than focusing the conversation back on me? So one of the key ways that we silence other people is actually in that micro interaction, changing the topic to ourselves. And the person who raised the initial topic, who by the way, if they're newer or younger or more junior or whatever it is, probably took a lot of effort for them to even name their concern. And instead of validating their concern or validating them or signaling to them that you have heard them, you've just made it about you. So allyship is, can you show up for them? rather than yourself. And notice that that's really hard to do because we as human beings are wired to think about ourselves. Oh, I think we've all been guilty of that. Yes. So that's the discipline, right? The discipline and the opportunity is to listen for what they're actually saying rather than responding with your own reaction. That's, I love how that's, it's really, you know, you always hear that people want to be seen and heard. Yeah. But that's such a, heady type yeah. of statement. No, I see you. You're like right here. Yes. Do you not see me? <laughs> <laughs> but to have something actionable like that is mm-hmm. so valuable to say, okay, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. To and, and what are those pitfalls? Yeah. Like, how do I get out of my own way? Totally. Listen for what they're actually saying and then respond rather than react. Can I give you another one? Here I am asking for permission again. We'll just note it. Unlearning. (laughs) We are in a process. I am on my journey too. So another one is when we don't design our communication processes, they default to benefit the people in power. You see this all the time when there's headquarters and there are satellite offices. Where do we normally hold our big important meetings? Headquarters, of course. Great. Who has to travel to get there? Everybody else. Who does not have to travel to get there? (laughs) The ones with the biggest titles. Great. If we're a global organization, when do we hold our most important meetings? In the time zone of the CEO of the leadership team. And whether that is being in India or in China or in Copenhagen, you know, it... I have been on calls in the middle of the night, video off because I'm breastfeeding, because I didn't want someone to have to time zone shift again. If we're not speaking in some, at someone's sort of prime time hour, they are by nature at a disadvantage, right? You're, you're, you cannot be firing on all cylinders at all hours of the day. And knowing that we're a global organization means that there's no perfect time zone. Trust me, I've tried to find it. If you know it, let us know because we're all looking for it. No, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. But then, A, how do we be honest about the real impacts of the time that we are choosing? Because if you're choosing to meet at 4 a.m. my time or middle of the night my time, you're not going to get my best thinking. So you shouldn't expect that we are in equal playing fields. And second or B, how do we optimize for voice? How do we make it so that we increase the likelihood everyone can bring their best, not just the CEO, not just the leadership team, not just the people who are already in power. Works really well for them. They have their normal commute. 
versus I've flown 18 hours to get here with multiple transfers and I am jet lagged and exhausted and I'm supposed to show up and be coherent. That, that is not supporting my voice. And so even the design of time, place, medium, all of those are opportunities to think about how do we actually get different people's voices in the mix, including also processing speed. So some people are in the moment, processors, verbal processors, let's talk it out. In corporate, we tend to prioritize those people. They're good on their feet and their voices tend to be the loudest versus people who are post-processors, who by the way, are brilliant. Absolutely. And their best thinking is gonna come 20 minutes after the meeting. Their best thinking is gonna come when you give them uninterrupted time. So how do we design our communication and project, our workflows to get all of that best thinking in the mix rather than just prioritizing the voices of those who think best in the moment, uh, can communicate in three succinct bullet points and live at headquarters because we're implicitly silencing or disadvantaging the voices of those who don't fit those, that profile. That's a good point. And a very relevant challenge given that, I mean, we are more and more global. So we, of course, growing our global presence. You know, we, we try and are continually trying to mm -hmm. address just that issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know the best example, of course, are, are, are we locals that are yeah. across the world and we're expanding on those. Yep. But it's a challenge that everyone that's going global, which is pretty much everyone, totally. all companies these days are facing. And I will say for SWE locals, and, and for people who are more junior, there can be this sense of, I just, I should be grateful to have this job. I should be grateful to be on this team. I should be grateful that I'm getting paid in US dollars because it's a lot better than the currency fluctuations of my home country. Gratitude is not mutually exclusive from trying to optimize. Absolutely. You can be grateful and still want to make things better. Mm -hmm. So you are not selfish. You are not whatever internal narrative we might have in asking, hey, could we send around the questions before the meeting so that those of us who think better when we're not talking can, can process, pre-process? Or can we leave where we are in this meeting as the placeholder default, but everybody sleep on it and reconnect tomorrow or put it in Slack just to see if anything else comes up? Those are really small process tweaks that in terms of inclusion and allyship, bring other voices forward. Hearing you say it, it sounds like common sense. It's not always common practice. It's Yes, well said. I keep trying to put myself out of business because I'm like, this is just common sense. Have we forgotten our humanity? Can we not treat each other like human beings? I'm still in business. Something tells me you'll be in business for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> have we forgot our humanity? We have. So how do we bring that back? Because at the end of the day, we are human beings. I would argue that we're all trying to do our best. How can we then really create environments and teams that allow us to do that? And gets by 
awareness of the patterns and habits that we've learned and awareness of the opportunities that we have in making different choices. Absolutely. There, so we've talked about kind of those, you know, these decisions that you're making, and a lot of these are from those that are in a place of seniority or power, mm, correct? Mm-hmm. You know, most of our listeners are women in STEM and engineering, and I think that they have a real opportunity to help be a part of building that inclusive culture, no matter mm. where they are totally. on the hierarchy um, with their respective employers. What what would you say are like your, if you had like a top three mm. kind of tips, best practices, what can they do no matter where they are in the ladder yeah. for creating that workplace that has that culture that promotes safety and mm-hmm. diversity and open mm-hmm. communications and helping people unlearn that silence? Yeah. Number one, start with yourself. Start with yourself, meaning don't forget that you have a voice. Don't deny your own needs, goals, hopes, and concerns because you as an individual have needs, goals, hopes, and concerns. And they, they are just as valid as anyone else's. So too often, particularly when we're junior or we're the only in the room, we deny the things we care about and we prioritize everyone else. So I want to move you into the problem not make you a problem, but note note that you are part of what everyone needs to solve for because you are human, you are part of the team, you are just as valid as anyone else. So taking that mindset, two, would be notice for yourself where it is easier and harder for you to use your voice. So is it easier for you to share your thoughts in a a one-on-one setting or by email, text-based versus verbal? And can you design communication flows? Essentially, you're having to coach the people around you to work in a way that works for you. But that also starts with self-awareness for yourself. What's going to work better for me? And because I am valid, just as valid as anyone else, I can propose, hey, what if we were to try this? They can always say no, but at least you've put it out there. And when you make an ask or make a proposal. It's to say, because I think it will work better for the team, because I think we're going to get to better outcomes, because we're going to be able to innovate faster, whatever it is, what's the value proposition? Those would be my top two. I'm going to give you a third because you asked for three and I try to be compliant, which is to acknowledge that our silence is not just about ourselves. My silence is not just about me, and your silence is not just about you. We are all interconnected, creating these cultures on our teams and our workplaces together. And so what that means is, can we be visible in the ways that we are also choosing voice? I think a lot of times these conversations happen offline. It's like, oh, you know, that, that was not okay in that meeting. But we go text the person, we have this offline conversation, and I think that is often appropriate and means that the other people are less defensive. But if it's not visible to everyone, it's as if it didn't happen. So how do we share select stories about what works well, sort of inform the data set that we all have? Because if the operating assumption is we don't talk about those things here, 
it's never going to change. But it could be a, no, we did talk about it. It was in a one-on-one meeting afterward. And it was really helpful in this way. So it is both choosing voice to honor what is important to you, but it is also choosing voice to build a culture of voice. And by voice, I mean not just the words that we say, but our ability to move through the world in a way that we want to. And the more that we do that for ourselves, the more it shifts the culture to make it okay, if not even good, for everyone else to do the same. That makes sense. Tough question, or perhaps a tougher question. Ooh, I love it. Um, Bring it. For those that have been doing the work, and Mm. they are really a strong ally and following a lot of the great best practices and tools that you've shared with us today, how best can they get somebody else on the ally train? Mm. How do you bring somebody else along with you? Is there... Yeah, I think one of the embedded questions that I hear in this is, if people don't seem to want to do the work, how do you get them to do the work? Am I imagining that or is that part of the question? That's definitely part of the question. You know, and I think it's, you see potential in someone, right? Mm -hmm. You would never want to enlist somebody if you didn't see that that they have it in them. Mm -hmm. But what's the secret to getting them to take that first step on the allyship journey? which is an important journey. You know, Larry, it's a really hard question because there is something to say at the end of the day, people have to want to choose it for themselves. And no matter how hard we push, it is their work to do. It is a reaction I have every time I read the McKinsey study done with Lean In on the state of women in the workplace of... First, it was show us the data, show us the statistics, show us that it is a real problem. That report has shown the data and the statistics for years and nothing has changed. In fact, it has gotten worse and the breakdown by race is shockingly horrible. So it's, it's this question of, well, what are the levers that get people to care? Let me take a sidestep and then come back to that. One is... Let's be really clear about what is my work to do and what is someone else's work to do. Because there is a calculation of time and energy and bandwidth of how hard do I push for George, we'll call him George, to change his ways. Because from where I sit, it would be incredible if he could change. And yet every time I have nudged him, I have sent him an article, I have shown him the statistics, I have invited him to events, he never comes and he continues in his own way. And I think there is a, as much as I am someone who believes people can change, I'm also aware that people have to want to change in their own time. And so the act of self-care is, where am I spending my energy? Is it all on George? Or do I take a step back from that and work on a lot of the other important things? So there is an element of the other person's got to change. The things that tend to help, going back to your original question, are really clear instructions of what you can do. Where we started this conversation, like speaking someone's name in a room... And I think often people who are looking to be allies are looking for, here are the concrete things. If you just tell me the things to do, I will do them. 
So there still is an element of that, of that translation of what, oh, yeah, I could, I, I could mention Luciana's name in this room. Okay, that's one. Can you create opportunities for people to demonstrate their skill set? That is the essence of sponsorship rather than mentorship, creating those opportunities that often happen in the close-knit, you know, golf networks that we talk about. I will admit that I am bristling in having to have this conversation because it is so much of the emotional labor that happens in having to give someone a list. But I think the third way that it tends to happen is actually through storytelling. So if you are further along in this journey, what are the net benefits that have come out of your acts of allyship? How has it changed someone's life? How did it improve the bottom line? In what ways did it transform a project? Noticing those, sharing those, again, is not necessarily the roadmap, but is the planting of the seed, the ideation to say, oh, I could do that too. And at the end of the day, I'll go back to, we've all got to make our own choices of how we spend our time and energy. And I would advocate, particularly for women and women of color, to be careful to not to take on the work that other people need to do. We can provide all the data. We can provide options. We can provide a choose your own adventure. And we can show the difference in the bottom line. But whether or not that person decides to show up differently is, is their choice and is not fundamentally a reflection of your own success or effectiveness in influence. That's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. I I want to have a more hopeful answer, Larry. I really do. Uh, and well, I, in, I hope that there is hope in being as honest as I can because this is not easy work, no, but it is completely worthwhile work to honor the gifts, skills, and talents that we each have within us and create those teams and spaces that bring forth those gifts, skills, and talents on our teams, in our organizations, and in this world. And I, I'm hopeful, actually, because I'm hoping our storytelling today, mm. really, for anybody who's listening, uh, our listeners out here, forward them on to somebody to mm -hmm. share Elaine's story and all the great learnings and teachings that she has to offer to help build a stronger group of allies for this community, you know, to get out of that safety and silence, mm -hmm. unlearn that silence, exercise those muscles, mm -hmm. um, which is going to take integrity and it's going to take being vulnerable and being brave. Um, but I know, I know we can do that. I know, I, I know that. that people can do that. Whether it's sponsorship, mentorship, you got to take the first step. That's what I'm hearing. Take and a step. Yes. Take a step, and don't worry about being the perfect step, the best step. Just take a step, and learn something from it. And if it doesn't go as well as you've hoped, own it. Apologize. Learn something. That's how we're all going to get better. That's how we're going to be able to be human together. And that fundamentally is how we're going to make the world a better place. 
I'm still that girl who blew out the candles on her fifth birthday and wished for world peace. And I'm aware that apparently if you tell people what the wish was, it doesn't come out, it doesn't happen. But we've, we each have a role to play. And I'm glad that you're anchoring us to hope today to say each of us taking those actions, we will learn together and be better for it. And share the wish. Yeah, thank you. So that is the end of one uh, amazing episode of the Diverse Podcast live here at We23. Elaine, I can't thank you enough um, to share what you've shared and to be so vulnerable with us today is just amazing. And I, I hope that everyone listening really feels and it impacts them the way it's impacting me mm. having the pleasure of talking to you today around this. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And again, my name is Larry Guthrie. I'm the Director of Content Strategy for SWE. And from all of us at SWE, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode with your social network. You can visit podcast.swe.org to keep up with our episodes and learn more about how the Society of Women Engineers empowers women to achieve their full potential as engineers and leaders.